On today's episode, we discuss the $1,000 challenge and we update the Roth IRA conversion ladder for 2020. Welcome to Choose FI. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, Brad, really excited to dive into this past week's episode and bring in some of our takeaways as well as feedback from the community. And, and what I wanted to start with is what I am coining the $1,000 challenge. Now, I know I can see the curiosity. You want to know more, right? I cannot wait. <laughs> I'm on bated breath. There it is. I'm not even going to ask how you're doing. That's how excited <laughs> I am. You know, I feel like every single personal finance kind of guidelines start with, hey, you need to have $1,000, right? Start with $1,000 if you're paycheck to paycheck. Let's get that first $1,000 locked down. And for the record, I do not disagree. But I think it kind of poses a question, how? And I think many people come into this saying, well, I'm paycheck to paycheck because I'm paycheck to paycheck. What, what can I do? And I think with a little creativity, you can solve this and develop this for your own, you know, maybe places that you can optimize. But in case you've never gone through the thought exercise, I thought we could do it today. All right. Sounds intriguing. All right. So for, I guess I should say something that I've been doing personally is I've really been taking advantage of the, uh, the secondhand market. And I've been doing this from the position of a seller. Uh, I went through my garage, my garage felt cluttered. And while I could have just taken it all and either, you know, thrown it away or taken it through a thrift store, I said, I wonder if there's any value here. And first of all, I want to say there's really nothing more humbling and simultaneously empowering than realizing that stuff that you purchased you can't sell for 50% of what you bought it or 30% of what you bought it, which kind of goes to like, we put all this pressure on buying all the new stuff, but it's not worth anything. Yeah. This is something I've long seen at garage sales. I know my father-in-law, Laura's dad is famous for his garage sales where he sells everything for a quarter. (laughs) (laughs) It's not even worth putting out the table. (laughs) Right. It's it's absolutely not, but he loves his, uh, his entire jug of quarters. Um, But I mean, jokes aside, The things you buy, they weigh you down and we're buying them in many cases to keep up with the Joneses, to have that nice house, to have the nice throw pillows and nice lamps and all these things. And honestly, they're probably worth about a quarter thereafter. I mean, maybe you get some satisfaction from them, but if you think, I've seen people talk about these things, Jonathan, as an investment. (laughs) I I love how we we talk about these, oh my precious, it's an investment. (laughs) Oh my God, it's so silly. I mean, and you hear that word thrown around with lots of different consumer items. A car as an investment. I mean, we know it as the greatest depreciable asset you can possibly buy. I kind of chuckle it to myself when I hear investment, but you do hear this with people going out to buy things and saying like, oh, I have all these things that are worth something. Well, they're only worth something until you go to sell it. Yeah. Now that's actually interesting. And it kind of says there's two halves to this equation. One is kind of that stop. Like if you're going to have an investment, have an investment. Don't delude yourself 
you're, you're talking about speculation and you're calling it an investment and like 99.9% of the time it's going to work against you. You know, when they talk about a car that sold at auction 60 years later for $600,000, like you could do time money, time value of money calculation and have three or four times that. When you talk about your baseball card collection, Brad, I think you're actually guilty. Oh, yeah. Your comic book collection, like- <laughs> I'm dying inside right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. How many baseball, how much money did you spend on baseball cards as a kid? Yeah. I mean, I spent all my money quite, I mean, quite literally everything. I don't think I've ever told you this. My first job as a kid was working in a comic book and baseball card store. Now they had some significant investments. Oh yes, they did. Yeah. I was 13 or 14 years old. I actually worked up to being the manager of this store, like at 14 years old would open the, open the place, which is absurd. Obviously it's utterly laughable, but I would open the store up. I would turn the alarm off. I would, you know, do everything with the cash register and such. And it was, I mean, it was a great experience, but yeah, I mean, I probably spent many, many, many thousands of dollars on baseball cards and comic books. And I mean, this is probably an entire episode in and of itself. We should explore this, right? I could get a couch out for you. Yeah. Uh, no, but there's a lot to it. There really is. There's <laughs> supply and demand. There's scarcity, right? Like all the kids my age, their dads told them the story of their grandma. That sold that one baseball right. that was signed by the entire team. Right. Or the Mickey Mantle rookie card that they threw out. But what we didn't realize was they're only worth something because tens of millions of grandmas threw them out. And there's only mm. a couple thousand of them left. Whereas every kid my age saved the 1985 top set in pristine condition and there are 50 million of them, right? I was at the uh, the grocery store just the other day and I happened to see a wall of like, I think it was Yu-Gi-Oh cards maybe, like some sort of like collectible playing card for kids, maybe Pokemon cards, I don't know. Uh, and I was thinking, oh, collectibles. That, you might want to hold on to that one. There's probably a winner in there, but only if you don't open the package or you immediately encase it in a block of glass and don't touch it for 30 years so the corners aren't touched, right? I mean, this is the thing. It's only worth something if you don't use it. So you have something that's occupying physical space that's only going to be worth something if you never open it, if you never use it. Look, at that point, if you really are, you're not even talking about enjoying the item. You're just talking about like it being worth something down the road. Invest in something that's actually going to be worth something down the road. And if your thing is worth something now, just offload it while someone else is still crazy enough to buy it. <laughs> That kind of brings us to the yeah. second half. Yeah. <laughs> so my uh, five-minute sidebar here. So tell me about the $1,000 challenge and what this looks like. Okay. So I think if all of us are kind of having this wake up, like, wow, I really need to get started on my financial plan. The, 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 the stacks and stacks of baseball cards that I'm still holding on to for kid are probably worth in summation, although it's about 70 pounds, they're probably worth about $70 total, right? Or someone's actually charging us to go through them and sell them. Like, let's just figure out what we can do to actually start from scratch. So I have like three or four ideas. One is, although at a garage sale, you are going to make literally pennies on the dollar, far less, a quarter on average, and someone's going to try and negotiate your quarter down to 10 cents, happens every single time. You just glare at them, say, get out of here. <laughs> I can't even look at you. All right. So if that's the case, then let's not do garage sales when we're trying to get our $1,000. I mean, you can if it's all knickknacks and you want to accrue something, but let's take a look at all the stuff that we have that in our minds is now becoming associated with clutter. And let's look at the higher value items. Maybe you have a leaf blower, but you're living in an apartment complex. You don't even have room to store it. You, you have uh, accumulated stuff that you purchase that you've literally have never had time to use. You're full of buyer's remorse, but it's still in relatively good shape. You know, there's some sort of demand for it. There's two big options, Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist. I honestly feel, and I'm kind of surprised, but you can put them on both and you should put them on both. Facebook Marketplace is, it's hopping right now. I mean, it's, it's really working well. So I uh, had a uh, stationary bike that uh, my wife had wanted several years ago. She's never used it. 
Never. So I paid $250 for it. It was a, had less than 20 hours of ride time. You could still find the Amazon listing. Go get the stock pictures on Amazon and bring them over onto Facebook Marketplace. Bring the copy over and say, why pay full price when you can get it for 50% off? You know, that was my first $150. And then I took that and I did this on Facebook Marketplace that the new year, people are getting exercise equipment. I got $150 there. If you're too lazy to do this or you feel like you don't have enough time, like give it to your kids as a side hustle. Hey, you do all the work and you get to keep 50% of this, right? Have some, get them used to sell it. Be careful. They might say, hey, mom, can I sell that? No, no, you can't. <laughs> so, okay, hold on. Just to be clear. So this was an exercise bike you bought for 250 brand new a couple of years ago. Yeah, and you put it up for sale on both Craigslist and put, Facebook Marketplace? Put it up for sale on both Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. It was just a head-to-head yeah. test. What was the listing price you put it at? I just went straight to 150 Now, I'm, I, I figured, based on looking at a few of what the bicycles were selling for, that that was a very competitive, non-negotiable price. I could leave it there as long as, you know, if I, and it's a new year. People still have New Year's resolutions on January 1st, January 2nd, right? They've all broken them now, but that first week, come on. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so best practice. Are there any actionable tips like, you know, I've used Craigslist in the past, but it's been years. So I don't know if there's yeah. anything different. Like talk us through, are there any fees to list? Are there any fees at all? Are there anything you should be looking out for? Like talk us through how this actually works. You need to have pictures. You got a smartphone, take a couple pictures, take five or six pictures from different sides and just think through what your copy should be. And, and what I mean by copy is like the, what is the headline for this? So in my case, it was like absolutely brand new you know, highly reviewed exercise bike for fractions of what you would pay new, something like that, right? Uh, or you could actually put the description of what the item is in the copy, go over onto wherever you would buy this when it was new, if you can still find the listing. Many cases you can't, even if it's been discontinued, you can find a listing somewhere, even if it's on eBay. Copy the entire listing over and then down at the bottom say, and this is, if it's true, you know, I bought this two years ago. It has less than 20 hours of use. So it's virtually brand new you can now purchase it for less than 50% of that cost. Make the smart decision. Get this one today. Make this the ride. Make this the ride of 2020, right? All right, so this if you just put just a half amount of, a little bit of thought into how you want to market and sell these things, you can walk through your garage and, and on the one end, you could look at all the missed opportunity, time value, money, how much this money would have been worth if you had invested. Or you could just say, you know what? Mistakes made, moving forward, decluttering, going to start building this fund. And I have made now using that tactic and technique and decluttering my garage, I'm up to $550. That got me halfway to this thousand dollar challenge. I have some other ideas on how you can round this out. All right. So uh, obviously I want to hear them, but first, uh, are there any items you've noticed in particular? I imagine you've done some research on both Facebook marketplace and Craigslist things that tend to hold value. Are there specific items in the house that people should be looking for. You know, not everything is worth something, right? Like I'm assuming, and this is based on nothing other than my own, my own brain, like clothes probably are not going to get 50% of the original purchase price, right? Whereas you're saying you got 60% of the original purchase price for this brand, essentially brand new bike. Talk me through like categories you've seen that have worked in particular and things that people should just say, eh, it's probably not worth my time. Yeah. Uh, so I guess actually this is the perfect point. Although we just threw garage sales under the bus here, a quarter is not worth a whole lot. But if you have a ton of quarters, you're talking about 200 to 300. So what I would do is I would aggregate everything, make that big messy pile in the garage and separate between the, you know, the 80, 20, the high value items. Maybe you have four or five high value items. See if you can sell those individually. And then if you're looking at things that, you know, you're, the list price is going to be three, $4 here and there, it's probably not even worth the time that it's going to take you to actually create the listing, 
And you can make a case that it is, but you know, at some point there is a, there's a point in diminished return. So that's the point at which now we're thinking garage sale, right? Anything that I can set or bundle, anything that I think is going to bring me like $25 or beyond. And I have some sense of that because I know what I paid for it new. And I believe the depreciation on this will be minimal. I'm going to try and do those as individual items. And then if it's down in that kind of five, six, $10 range or below, I'm going to, at that point, I'm aggregating all together and say, all right, this is our decluttering yard sale. And then there's specific practices and maybe we could find or generate some content around how to have a successful yard. So at that point though, in my mind, all of this is a wash. This is the penalty for having crap, a lot of crap. And if you get a quarter at a time, let's add it all up. And maybe this is something you can even have your kids help with that sort of thing and make it a big family event. But it's kind of that tax for drift for years and years. Nice. Yeah, I like that. All right. So you're 550 in. It sounds like you've sold a couple of big items. What next? How do you get to the thousand? So first is what can you sell to create more income? The second half of this, and this is kind of just like the equation of life is, so how can you earn more? How can you spend less, right? How can you apply a little bit of intentionality to spending less? And when you look at the black hole in most people's budget, it's food, right? I mean, this is such an easy way over a short period of time, it's food. So this is where I like the idea of doing a no spend challenge. You started the new year, you've got Christmas and the holidays have just kind of passed and maybe you're just kind of regretting how much all of that costs and you just need to slow down for a little bit. So instead of committing yourself to a no spend year, which is not a bad idea, but it's a little extreme. I mean, people do it and their lives are changed by it, but I'm not saying that that's the, you know, what if we did 30 days? What would it look like over 30 days to not spend anything that wasn't essential. Could we take this on as a family challenge? Could we gamify this? And anytime we were bored, come up with a solution for the boredom that does not involve spending money. 30 days. Anytime you have an impulse to go do something, to go spend money, evaluate how much that would have cost. Say, nope, not doing that. And then go do something that's a free alternative. Take the money that you would have spent of that, add it to your $1,000 fund, call that a win. Do the same thing with your meals. You want to go out, you want to go get, you know, a meal at Chipotle. It's only, it's only seven bucks a burrito. You got three of you. It's gonna be 28 bucks. You know what? We're going to make tacos at home. We're going to add it into the grocery budget at home. All right. How much did you just save on that? You just went from seven or $8 a person, you know, times four down to $10 total. And that adds up. You don't, I think a lot of us, so it's part of a no spend month. It's the stuff, you know, it's the food, It's the clothing. It's just, let's just reel it in. Let's do a combination of earning more by decluttering and let's go through all the things that we do passively without analyzing them. And to be honest with you, we don't even appreciate it anymore. We just expect it, right? Just, oh, it's that time. (laughs) It's that time. Let's go go to Panda Express, right? Well, no, let's just for 30 days. Can we for 30 days just be intentional about this? That's my $1,000 challenge. I bet you, if you were to take this on, let's say now it's the, this is going to go live almost towards the end of January. What if for February as a group, we said, we're going to lock down this $1,000. Yeah, I like that. You know, it's, it's interesting. The word intention, you use that a couple of times in there. I think there's so many different ways to do this. I'm actually thinking, just as a brainstorm, totally off the top of my head, of a, a hybrid method, which is, okay, obviously people do have to spend some money, either on needs or some people just buy things that are wants. You can do that in the mindless grazing way. I mean, I am susceptible to this all the time. You go to Amazon. You click twice and it's bought. You might apply a little intention. So there's a couple different ways. First, camel, 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 which we talk about all the time. Every single product that exists on Amazon, which is essentially every single product that exists in the world, you can put a price watch on camel, camel, camel. You can look at the historical price and you can see, all right, this item varies between 
$20 and $50. And I kid you not, you're going to see that much variation on almost every product that exists. Breaks your mind. Right? It's insane. So you put a price watch on and say, all right, I'm going to put a pause on this. I don't need this right now. Maybe I was prepared to pay $45 for it, but I'm going to put a price watch on. And when it gets down to 25, I'll buy it. And then maybe at that point you might decide, ah, I didn't really need it. So maybe you'll have saved the full 45 or maybe you'll just have saved the $20 delta between the 45 you were willing to pay at that moment of weakness, essentially, versus the 25 that you put the price watch on. That's something to consider. So is that $20 saved? I mean, I think you can make an argument that that's $20 saved. There's ways to look at this in the near term. If you're thinking about buying something, we just said, we set up this entire thing with everything is available for resale on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. Take the thing that you were going to buy and do a quick search. Again, apply some intention. It takes you 30 extra seconds to do a quick search in those two spots in your local area and see if it's available. Maybe you'll have saved money on something that you were going to click buy or go out to the store to purchase. I mean, that's not saving in the traditional sense that I think a lot of personal finance experts would say. But I got to tell you, I think that's money saved. I think you take the money that you save and you move it over. So there is a physical $1,000 at the end of this. So, I mean, we got a new month coming up. I think we have just scratched the surface on how to really build an awesome resource for the $1,000 challenge. How about you take this challenge with us? So over the course of the next month, I will be held accountable to you, Brad. I'll tell you guys. We're going to do a no-spend month. I'm going to do a no-spend month and just kind of use this as a kind of an anchoring point. I think so many of us get excited more about the getting than we are about the having. We haven't even taken the time to use the stuff we already purchased. We're already thinking about the next thing. So let's use some combination of this anchoring method, this intentionality over the next month, and let's get that $1,000 set aside. Now, here's what I want from you. You're listening to this. You're excited about the idea. You're like, oh, yeah, that's what I needed. I'm going to do that. I want you to give us your feedback. I want you to give us your comments. I want to let us know are you going to take this challenge with us? So just say challenge accepted, right? Leave it in the comments below the article or on Facebook. Two, if we miss something or you have a creative idea on how you would go about saving this $1,000 that we didn't mention, or you have something to illustrate how you could go farther with it, do that. And then three, the third half of this, and we can kind of come, you know, this can taper over the next month. What are you going to do with the $1,000? What does that $1,000 mean for you? What does it represent? And how are you going to use it going into the remainder of this year? So I guess my question is, do you accept this challenge? Now, Brad, I'm not going to put the challenge on you, although you and Laura can voluntarily join. I realize I sandbagged you with this, but I personally, I've talked to my wife about it. We are personally taking on the no spin challenge for the month of February and uh, to our community. I hope that you will join us if this is something that you could use. All right. So I want to go ahead and switch gears. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this episode that we did with Liz and Braden. I grabbed the voicemail and I've actually put it in the show notes for this episode. So you can kind of listen to it. But in summary, it was just overlooking a period of about 12 months, all the progress that they had made. You know, we just talked about how it might just start with getting a thousand dollars, but you don't have to stop there, right? I mean, it's momentum. This is a momentum game when you can apply some intention to it. As you saw with their story, it's like, all right, well, what else do we want to do? Not what else do we have to do? What else do you want to do? And that you, you heard the enthusiasm come through once they figured out that this was all about gamification when they were doing this as a team. Yeah. And Jonathan, just to note, while you said we're going to put that in the show notes, that was on episode 136R. If you want to go and uh, download that episode and listen to Liz's voicemail again. And what I came away with that episode, one is we, for the sake of time and really walking through this big kind of transformation they had in their relationship where you had this reluctant spouse. It's like, oh, I got this. There's nothing else for me to learn. We're doing just fine too. 
oh my goodness, let's get started. Yeah, what else? And then you actually saw them take action on it. But what I thought we could do, because we had to kind of breeze by this a little bit, is go back to the idea of the scholarships. And our community knows that like this show and this community is being built in front of you. When you're actually caught up on the episodes, you're living this out. The same way a couple of years ago, it started with a voicemail and an idea about a documentary. Now we have a documentary that went around the country, screening tours around the country. All these things start as ideas. And then hopefully as we get buy-in from our guests and from our community, we, we find a way to bring those to reality. I thought, I know, because I feel the pain point personally, there's a lot of fear about the cost of college. And there's a lot of doubt about how to best approach that and how much we need to be setting aside for our kids. And if we felt confident in our ability to help our kids acquire scholarships, a lot of the fear and insecurity that comes with that would go away. What struck me, Brad, is the, the confidence that Liz had. I knew I was going to get this scholarship. And part of that was she was anchored to another friend that did five times as good as she did, the million-dollar scholarship winner. We just need a fraction of that. I don't even know what she got. We just need a small fraction of that, right? So what if we could glean the essence of what she, the, the, the Pareto, right? The Pareto's principle, the essence of what she did and apply that to everybody, not someone that had specifically her circumstances. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's certainly high time that we aggregate all these college hacks that we've been putting together across 300 plus episodes now and bring in Liz to give us a framework. That's the beautiful thing about the entire Phi community. The best ideas bubble up to the top. And there are so many people out there doing incredible things but we can't have them just in hundreds of different silos, right? Where one little piece of information is here, one is there. If we can put it all together, we've got something really, really powerful. So the question that comes to mind was, how do we best do that? And I have an idea and it's going to need buy-in from our audience as well. But what I thought we could do is, MK, can you reach out to Liz and see if she would do a guest post for us on the site on bringing in all of her insights, her strategy on acquiring, you know, applying for and acquiring these scholarships. She said she was hitting around a 20% acceptance rate. Yep. Already on it. All right, cool. Now the next piece of that, so that's for, if Liz will help us with that, we can get that in place. And that is a framework to start from a strategy to start from, but it's not going to capture the nuance. So how do you dial it up even further and figure out how you'd apply her framework to someone's unique situation? That's where we need audience buy-in. And if you will announce when the article goes live, and when that happens, we need you to then submit your questions and your feedback and things that you would clarify specifically on the show notes for that episode in the comments. If you have a child that has a specific situation, you, they have a specific degree or a school that they want to target, have a career or profession, whatever it might be, we'll need you to provide those questions. What we can do is we can then come back to that with the additional information you provide or the questions you provide on the comments we will then bring that article and Liz back on a Friday roundup and we will dedicate an entire episode to sifting through those and turning those into additional content for the community. And I think even more than that, we're applying it to scholarships right now. That's a process that if we're going to say we're a crowdsource show, that's what a crowdsource show, once it's dialed in, that's what it looks like. Brad, I know that you are passionate about closing loops. I am. And, not, and that, you know, I think our audience appreciates that. I just want to say I, I appreciate that too. Uh, so, in the interim between now and when, when we get this article posted, someone's listening to this. They already had the question. They didn't know where to best submit it. If it would be seen, how about if someone is in that situation and they want their question, which they have now, and they don't know if they'll remember it several months from now, they can go to choose of slash one six three, which was the episode with Liz and Braden. Put your question there. We won't be able to immediately give you an awesome answer to that question. But what we will do is with every single comment that's related to scholarships, we will acknowledge that we receive it 
and it's been added to our list, right? So we will go through those, we'll collect these, and we will bring that into our into this into this dialed in scholarship episode for this year. Right. And just to clarify, it's not just questions. If you have suggestions on on things that you did that worked out well that we've just never heard of, right? Like we talked about the caddy scholarship with Noah and Becky. And I mean that my brain exploded when I heard that. That's a one-off thing. Undoubtedly, you out there either have firsthand experience or know somebody who has something. If you have some amazing college hack, some scholarship that you've heard of, go to chooseify.com slash 163 and drop it in a comment and let us know. All right, there's clearly a lot more that we could dive into, but I actually had a pretty audacious goal for this episode and I wanted to go ahead and get right into it. And that was to update our Roth IRA conversion ladder case study for the new year, you know, in this case, 2020 and beyond, but we've had some pretty significant tax law changes that have come into place since we initially rolled out that episode. I've actually seen a a fairly significant number of questions like, okay, great. I have plans to become a 401k millionaire, but I can't access the money till I'm 60. So, you know, now what? And so I think it's important to, even if right now you don't need to use the Roth conversion ladder, it's important to understand how it might work. So you don't have this fear of having quote unquote fear of having too much money in your 401k. And it's so funny. I'm such an accountant at, at heart that when you said I can't access it till I'm 60, I said 59, 59 and, a half. and a half. Come on, Jonathan. <laughs> you got to be precise, man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. It's the year you turn 59 and a half, right? It's a weird, what a random, why don't you just say 60? The year you turn six, who, who does that? We'll figure it out. All right, Brad, you can come back and close that loop oh, on whether or not that was precise enough for you. But I figured if you're going to give me a hard time about precision, I'd just send it back to you. That shall not stand. Okay, here's kind of where I want to go with this. So I've done a little bit of prep work. The interesting thing or the difficult challenge about doing a quote unquote case study like this is you want to give numbers that are as useful for as many people as possible while at the same time recognizing that there are so many variables that if you get pigeonholed into one scenario, it's really not usable for very many people. All right, Jonathan. So just to clarify, I'm pretty sure that you can access these until you actually turn 59 and a half. So it's not like if you turn 59 and a half in December that you could start taking them out in January of that year, you know, 11, 11 and change months before I know it's confusing, right? Because there's a tax so year. Dumb. It's so silly. <laughs> but I think very technically, at least what I'm reading here in the three minutes that I've been uh, been searching this, is that you cannot do it until you actually turn 15 and a half. I'm just waiting until 60, and, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's just the intelligent easier. But the interesting yeah. thing about that is, you know, when you're talking about accessing these funds, you're talking about drawing out potentially a year's worth of income, right? So although you can't access it until six months past your birthday, whatever that is, 59 and a half. At that point, you could access a year's worth of, you know, what you can, you basically get to decide how much you want to bring out. So there's a difference between access and then how much you're not limited to any particular amount. It's your money, decide what you want, but you get to avoid the penalty if you just defer that withdrawal until after. Right. And that is the key is avoiding that penalty. That's what people are talking about. And I think that's what a lot of our case study is going to talk about. It's avoiding the penalty when withdrawing your money from whatever retirement vehicle you're talking about. It's just extremely silly in probably 99.9% of cases to pay a 10 plus percent penalty, depending on what the withdrawal is. I know it's higher, I believe on the HSA, but 10% is generally what we hear when it comes to early withdrawal penalties on IRAs and 401ks. You don't want to pay 10% in just a straight penalty by doing something stupid, essentially. Okay. With regards to the case study, figuring out the numbers. Now we could 
engineer this and talk about how much you're setting aside, but let's just talk about kind of 401k millionaires. People, uh, you have a married couple, they've got two kids. They've been diligently saving for 15 to 20 years. They have in their 401ks, one and a half million dollars. All right. And they're approaching the age of 45 years old. I mean, honestly, the numbers work out pretty well for you. If, if one of those individuals was able to max out their 401k and made pretty good returns over that period of time, they're they, they're going to get to 1.5 million. You know, take it. You maybe have more, maybe you have less, but let's just work from that assumption for right now. Now, you do need some, in order to pull off a Roth conversion ladder. You do need to have money to live off of during this process for reasons that we'll we'll get into in just a second. So you need to have some amount of money in. I guess what we call a taxable investment account. You will need enough to cover at least five years of expenses. And the reason for that is there's something called seasoning, which we'll get into in just a second, but it's not enough to just have all your, you will need, you don't need to have matched what's in your 401k, but you will need enough to cover five years of expenses. So this individual, they weren't able to start at the same time as their 401k. They got started with their 401k, but as they got raises, maybe in their early thirties, they started to get significant headway. And they have been putting an additional $1,500 a month in their taxable accounts for the last 10 years or so. And they actually have $350,000 in taxable investment accounts, right? So it's a fraction of what they have in their 401k. I mean, this couple is doing really well, married, two kids. The reason that that is interesting, and, and the reason I picked this is actually in a couple weeks ago, I referenced another case study with a buddy of mine, kind of what his numbers might, might look like. This is a very reasonable example. Two individuals at various points, they both are working, making maybe around $90,000 plus a year, two kids. I think that that covers enough people. All right, Jonathan. So let's slow down a, a quick second here. Obviously, this is a really, really important and fundamental piece of being in the FI community, it's actually one of the superpowers of just things that people outside of the FI community have never heard of the Roth IRA conversion ladder. So for someone who's listening to this for the first time, didn't hear our episode, you know, 300 episodes ago, let's just slow down and talk for one or two minutes about what the actual concept is here. In essence, we're saying these people have $1.5 million in their 401k. In general terms, people think that they can't access that money until they're 59 and a half. So there's a conundrum. They're 45. They believe that they're at FI, but they can't, quote unquote, can't access their money for another 14 and a half years. So what to do? I believe in this scenario, you're saying, all right, they have reached FI in essence at 45. Again, in this hypothetical, they're going to stop working. Now, of course, you could always make money in FI life and, and such, but that's beside the point. We're going to assume $0 of income because that makes this an even starker example of how you can take money that is in a 401k and actually get it out of there, not only penalty-free, but largely, if not 100% tax-free, yeah. right? That is the superpower of the Roth IRA conversion ladder. So it's really, really fundamentally essential that everyone understands what we're talking about here. We're talking about basically magic to most people, right? But yet this is perfectly legit. It's just that most people continue to earn income. So they're at a high marginal tax bracket and therefore they can't do something like what you're going to lay out in detail here. But again, having this superpower of having no income at this point, once you're already financially independent, and having five years of savings, because that is going to prove very, very important here, 
in your regular taxable savings. Now that could be a bank account. Hopefully it's something like Vanguard or Schwab with some low cost index funds, but that is outside of an umbrella of a 401k or IRA or the like. Is that a pretty good summary? That's great, man. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the key there being let's avoid taxes when we're in our higher marginal tax bracket and let's embrace taxes when we pay very little in taxes, when we're in a lower marginal tax bracket. And I want to say it's not the end of the world to pay some taxes on this conversion. You haven't lost. The game isn't broken. You didn't make a mistake. You're just, effectively, you get to make the choice, how much tax do I want to pay? As opposed to when you're an employee, you just got taxed on what you make. You, the control really shifts to your side of the court. And that's the difference in thinking. I want to say that, there's an article out there. And actually, I want to do a whole episode on this with Millionaire Educator uh, talking about how it's just a different way of looking at the tax brackets that tells a very compelling story and kind of gives you some sense of ownership on how much tax you want to pay. But we'll come back to that in a little bit here. So what I thought we could do, Brad, in, in the case study we did in 2019, uh, we kind of intentionally, for the sake of just staying in the constraints, chose, like, I think, a $30,000 a year lifestyle. I've actually, in this case, uh, rounded it up a little bit to a $50,000 in living expenses. So again, if you need five years of income to actually live off of, if that's in your taxable accounts, you would just multiply what your living expenses are times five. This couple would need at least $250,000. With the case that we just laid out, they actually have $350,000 in their investment accounts. I really want the audience to kind of do this along with us. So I want you to take your own projected numbers, what you think you could realistically have and figure out how to kind of use this as a template. And in this case, it's important to point out the way the tax code is structured currently. When you're married, filing jointly, Brad, you can roll with this very, very quickly. You get a $24,000 deduction basically right out the gate. Maybe it's even just a, a hair more than that. And then when you have kids, if you're making, I believe the actual number for Merrily filing joint, if you make less than $400,000, that's the cutoff, you're eligible for this child tax credit. It's $2,000 per child, which basically takes care of the entire, the entire 10% uh, marginal tax bracket. So what that means practically is for a couple that is married filing joint with two kids, their first $60,000 in income is effectively tax-free. Yeah, that's really interesting. So yeah, it looks like the standard deduction is 24800 for 2020. And it seems like the IRS has been increasing this by $400 per year for a married filing joint couple. So that's standard deduction. You take your regular income and you just get to deduct that. That is basically a free deduction from the government when you're calculating your tax liability. And what you're saying now with the tax credit, I think a lot of people get confused with tax credit versus deduction. Yep. A tax credit is immensely more powerful. It is a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction in the tax that you owe. So what you're saying here is if you're getting a $2,000 tax credit per person and you were at a 10% tax bracket, that's like the equivalent of $20,000 of income or wages, let's say, right? Because you have $20,000 of income multiplied by that 10%. This is hypothetical. I'm not looking at tax brackets here, but this is the concept. That's the most important thing. 20,000 multiplied by 10% gets you that $2,000 of tax liability that you would owe. But then you'd say, oh, wow, I have this $2,000 child tax credit. So my tax liability is actually zero. That's what you're saying here. So we have three pieces for this couple. They have two of these tax credits plus this standard deduction. Right. And because there's so many variables here, I'm not actually interested in calculating what their current tax burden is. What's the difference between the free money that they're not paying taxes on versus after they invested the 401k with, it's just, it's too far in the weeds for this conversation. But what I want to say is they have this net worth, married, filing jointly, two kids. They're still pretty young in life at 45. 
they are now walking away. I just want to illustrate how this, this ladder would work. So let's just say the year is 2020. It's their first year of not working with this amount of income. So this year, they're making no money this year. They have this $1.5 million that's in their investment accounts. They have $350,000 in their taxable accounts. Their life costs $50,000. They are living in year 2020 and beyond. For the next five years, they're living off the money that's in this taxable investment account. Now, that's theirs. If they want to use it, they may pay some capital gains when they bring that money out, but they're not paying traditional taxes as you would think about it. So it doesn't really affect their tax bracket. That's the amazing thing about having money in a taxable investment vehicle. This is a Roth IRA conversion. So we are converting the money that was in our 401k into a Roth IRA that we own. And based on the brackets that I laid out for you, and it can vary depending on your family situation at the time, depending on you know whether or not the kids have graduated off the college. This is, again, one of the variables, right? Are, you, are your kids dependents or not? So let me just give you the range. You have a pretty significant amount of free money space. So if you're married, filing joint with no kids, it's about 20, just under 25,000. With one child, it's about 45,000. And with two kids, it's just under right about $61,000. So you can convert up to that amount without paying any tax on that. But here's the thing. You've converted it, but you still can't access it. It has to go through a process called seasoning. And seasoning is a five-year event. So this is why when we talk about a ladder, this is what we're talking about. The year 2020 was the first year that you did this conversion. And then 2021, and then 2022, and then 2023, and then 2024. Now you have five years of conversions. You've converted, depending on your family situation, anywhere from thirty dollars to $60,000 of this money that was in your 401k is now been converted and is now sitting and seasoning inside of your Roth IRA. And here's the cool part. You can continue this, right? But, but at year six, something changes. The first year of money, the money that you converted in 2020 is now accessible. You can pull out what is considered a contribution. And now what you've done is you can access that money. If it was $60,000, you have $60,000 of income for that year that you can access. And then the next year, depending on your family situation, you can access, you know, $60,000 and you create this ladder effect that effectively allows you to have, if you go back to the inception, put the money in, allow it to put the money in tax-free, allow it to grow tax-free. And then now through this ladder and seasoning effect, pull it out at a tax rate that you predetermined how much you want to pay. And in many cases that could be zero. And that's on a very comfortable middle-class lifestyle. Yeah, Jonathan, there is a lot there. And it's really important that I'm going to try to summarize here. Like you said, you are converting and you get to choose the amount. This is not an all or nothing thing. So for this family who has $1.5 million in their 401k or IRA, whatever it is, it's a pre-tax dollars. Now, they don't have to convert all 1.5 million of this at one time because that would be a pretty horrific taxable event, right? That would be $1.5 million of taxable income that goes in that one year. That would blow up this entire thing. The beauty is they can convert as much or as little as they want. And now for this couple, we're saying their yearly expenses are $50,000. For this couple, the magic number is 50,000. What they are going to do is they are going to convert at least 50,000. Now, if they have more space there that allows them for tax-free or essentially tax-free, they might consider converting up to 60,000. As as much as you can convert tax-free, you definitely would do. So let's say if they have two kids, Jonathan, you're saying roughly they have about 60,000 of space. I suspect they would convert 
60,000 a year. So what's going to happen is that is a taxable event. They have basically said to the government, hey, tax me on this $60,000. But because in this example, they are earning no other income, that is the only amount that is going on their tax return. That's 60,000 of income. Now, as Jonathan has laid out, they have the standard deduction and they have the two child tax credits. So they are going to pay $0 in tax liability on that conversion. You can start to see now what's going on here. They are going to continue to do that until all $1.5 million is out of that 401k or IRA. So they will have put this away at their highest marginal bracket when they were working. They will have said, all right, I'm contributing this amount to my 401k. I don't want to be taxed on it. I'll be taxed later. And then because of the brilliance of this strategy and the FI community has found, they're going to pay no tax on it when they pull it out. It is an astounding, astounding thing. And the whole point, just to bring this home here, Jonathan, is when you said they need this five years Mm. of money in their taxable accounts, where that comes is because of that seasoning period that Jonathan spoke of, you can't pull this out penalty-free before that five-year seasoning period is up. So you need to bridge the gap, in their case, from 2020 to 2024, basically, five calendar years. They're using that $350,000 that they have in their taxable accounts to cover their life expenses for those five years. And then from there on out, they can keep on doing this ladder, live on that $50,000, and they're going to pay $0 in tax. I mean, this is a miraculous thing. It's amazing. It's amazing. And keep in mind, they're never going to be able to deplete their entire 401k based on the numbers that we just rolled out. I mean, they're bringing some of it over, but even as they're bringing it over, the money that is in their 401k is continuing to grow tax-free. So, I mean, just for the sake of, of giggles here, that was an interesting word choice. Uh, <laughs> if you have 1.5 million and you make 8% on that, that year, that investment account would earn or would, would appreciate by about $120,000. So even as you're withdrawing, a year from this account in a good market or an average market, your money is actually refilling faster than you're actually pulling it out, which is amazing. And then on top of that, you're just bridging the gap until you get to 59 and a half, (laughs) you know? So like, we're only talking, we're talking about a 15 year ladder. And after that, the 401k is available. And now you're just, it's, it's the same effective idea, but now it's simplified. You don't need to go through a conversion. You can just access your money, but the principle of controlling your tax rate is key. If you control your tax rate and you decide our life is going to cost either because we kind of, we, we watch, we're intentional about our spending or because you've made the choice to pay off your mortgage and you just basically your 40, 50, $60,000 is just kind of core expenses, but not housing, not car payments, all this stuff, you know, what, whichever way you choose based on the current tax structure, your tax burden is going to be severely light. So I think it's one of the things that when someone tells you, oh, I, I just can't believe how much I'm paying in taxes. I was like, do you actually know how the tax structure is working? Like, have you optimized at all? You might want to, you might want to just kind of take a hard look at your life choices, you know, <laughs> because you really, you can control a lot of this, especially if you understand the power of marginal tax brackets and you understand the power of optimizing your lifestyle around value instead of around stuff. All right. That's a 2020 case study update on the Roth conversion ladder. Brad, final words. Yeah, Jonathan, I mean, this is a really succinct summary of something that is life-changing potentially for many people out there. They think they can't access this money. Well, you certainly can. We just showed how you can do it in depth and it's really easy and you can pay essentially nothing in tax. I mean, this is 
the holy grail, right? Absolutely. All right, MK, we're going to dive into the mailbag this week. What do you got for us? Well, coming up first, we have an update on the Cities of Phi. So several months ago, we actually announced that we were going to do the Cities of Phi, the best cities in the United States for Phi. And we are going to do an international version later, but we wanted to do the domestic version first. And we are happy to announce that we have our 10 top cities for Phi. The article went live this week, and we were able to connect with the admins in the local groups and say, you need to keep this top secret, but can you just look at this and make sure it's correct. So the top 10 cities are live and they are Richmond, Virginia, Gainesville, Florida, (laughs) Rochester, Minnesota, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Las Vegas, Nevada, Charlotte, North Carolina, Boise, Idaho, and Vancouver, Washington. Wow. This feels very controversial. How does, how did we, (laughs) what was the metrics that we used to decide that these are? the cities of Phi. So we looked at a lot of different metrics and we put out that survey. And surprisingly, a lot of people didn't fill it out. We had an overwhelming amount of people who filled out our survey over the summer just to get an idea of who's here, who our audience is. And a lot of people didn't fill this out. And I was like, I get the feeling a lot of people just think the grass is greener somewhere else and they don't see that their city is good for Phi. That was kind of what I took from it. So we decided to take a look at what are good places with a great cost of living relative to their area. They have a local university, so they have lots of great resources around that, good library systems. They have a good community, a FI community there as well. So there were a lot of factors that went into this. And you can see it's a very long article on chooseafi.com, but you can jump quickly to each city and get a feel for that. So if you are thinking, you know, I want to hit FI, I want to move out of here because I'm in a high cost of living area, or I don't think this is where I want to be when I retire, then check out these top cities for FI uh, because maybe that'll make things a bit better. Nice. Now, is there any thought that this will be an ongoing reference or source that is continuing to be built over time as we get new information? I would certainly hope so. Or if we find out, hey, you know, our city or our town just enacted a new law or ordinance that makes it more pedestrian friendly or bike friendly, or our library just got this great funding, so it's better now, or any of those things, we would certainly want to consider that and factor that in. We did have a lot of people from one specific local group who tried to stuff the ballot box on theirs. (laughs) Um, And I was like, we can't do this one. Like, it's it's so expensive. Like we couldn't, I could not in good conscience recommend anybody. So thank you for your enthusiasm. I'm sure they will continue to write in and say that their city is the best and they feel that way. But I don't know if other people would feel that way if they weren't already living in the area because their costs would go up significantly. There's a difference between, there's a difference between optimized for FI and we make it work. That's a separate article. Exactly. And I think that's something we would want to continue to do to say, hey, for these really great cities where we have a thriving community, but are maybe expensive, or maybe they don't have great infrastructure as far as libraries and pedestrian friendly or bike friendly and things like that to hear from people. Here's how we make it work in this city that other people just assume is too expensive to live in or too difficult to figure out for FI. I think that would be a nice counterpoint of like the cities that shouldn't be for FI, but we make it work. So we'll work on that too after we get the international version of Cities for Phi going. So wanted to make sure we circled back on that for everyone. Yeah, that's awesome, MK. I'm sure we're going to have that linked up in the show notes to this episode, right? Absolutely. So you can check out this long article that discusses each of the 10 cities in detail. The ultimate resource. All right, cool. Now, uh, we actually have another announcement, I believe, as it pertains to Choose Phi Publishing. 
Yes. So we're very excited. This week, we are announcing that our second and third books are now available for pre-order. The exciting thing here is Rob, who two of you uh, interviewed with him earlier this week, which will go live in a couple of weeks here. So Rob is part of our team. He's helping to develop the K-12 through curriculum through the foundation because he is a math teacher. And one of the electives he's been assigned to teach at his high school in Maryland the past few years has been entrepreneurship to prepare his students for an entrepreneurship competition. So he developed a curriculum to break down all the steps of, well, how do you do your market research? How do you vet a good idea? How do you work as a team? How do you create a prototype for your product? Everything that they would need to do to win their competition. And so we've taken this curriculum. He made a workbook on his home computer with everything. And we took it and we polished it. We got quotes from the great entrepreneurs in our community like... Alan Donegan and Cody and Julie. So it's been really great to have everybody come in and add their quotes and their input on the book as well. The Simple Startup is the name of the book. It is the curriculum that you can use for your homeschool or if you are just a parent who wants to get involved with their student. And there is a student workbook and an instructor manual. So that is why it does two books and not one. So we have a version that is for the students where they have activities to work through. And then the instructor manual will have the additional information for the teacher or the parent to go through to help their, their student learn. Cool. And MK, we can find that at the simplestartup.com, correct? Correct. All right. And this, it, Jonathan, we saw an early prototype of this workbook and it is gorgeous. I mean, legitimately amazing. Yeah, that episode with Rob is scheduled to go out in early March. And it was one of those when we recorded, it just blew me away. I think what they have going both with this workbook and with the K through 12 curriculum through the foundation is just potentially world changing. I really want to see you and Anna go through that book together. Oh, that would be like, what's amazing about this. And let me just say, after interviewing Rob and kind of going through the book, I understand why it was created the way it was, is that instead of it being very lecture-based, hey, I'm going to teach you all of these things. It's student-led, it's interest-led, and it's done in a way that provides some very, very generous guardrails so that at the end of it, you're going to have something, right? And I think even if you look at Rob's story, uh, which we'll release, I think it's coming up in March, you'll see how he had this entrepreneurial skill set that was dormant for years, but he had it. He had the opportunity to do that and he realized how valuable it was and if he could replicate that experience for other students, I don't think everyone that listens to this show and every, every child whose parents listen to the show needs to become an entrepreneur, but all of us should be thinking like one, should have developed that skill set, flex that muscle, because it will change your world and it'll be added to your talent stack. So if this was entirely based on the knowledge of the teacher, then it would be very hard for you to be able to replicate this experience. It would be entirely predicated on you having Rob there to then provide the exact same experience. What this does instead is take a very natural thought progression that's linear and builds, and it gives the student the chance to actually explore their own interest. We spend years telling students what to learn and never really give them the opportunity to ask and say, what are you interested in? And what could you build around this? The book is intended, and I've seen now both the teacher version and for the student, to give a parent or a teacher the way to dialogue with the student to get them to do their own research and create something either as an individual or together as a team. It's very powerful. And for you to be able to replicate this experience is going to be priceless for the kids that you're working with. Yeah, and again, that is thesimplestartup.com, thesimplestartup.com. 
Yep. And it will be available on February 10th. You can pre-order it now with individual copies online. But if you are a school administrator or teacher and you'd like to get a bulk order going, there's information on that website about how to contact us to be able to get that bulk order. All right, MK, we have two other kind of reminders slash updates here. So first is Jillian's podcast, Everyday Courage, for anybody out there who has not subscribed to it. What are you waiting for? The podcast is fantastic. It really is. There's no question about it. I've listened to every episode. I cannot wait for season two to come out. Jillian is just knocking it out of the park. You're listening to this, obviously, on a podcast player right now. Just take a second, hit pause, go search for Everyday Courage, and hit subscribe. Simple as that. And the other thing, MK, we have is FI 101. When this goes live, this episode, it's January 24th. And the very next day, January 25th, is the official go live of FI 101. Steven, Melissa, and the team have been working like crazy for basically a year on this. And the day is finally here. So if you're listening to this, go to choosefi.com slash FI 101 and sign up for this free course. It's absolutely free. It is the best way to get started with the concepts of financial literacy and financial independence. If you're already past that, share it with a friend, share it with a family member, a colleague, coworker, whoever it is, just get the word out there. This is an entirely free course. And Brad, obviously you have a pretty good grasp on the tenets of financial independence. And I know that you are actually in there taking the lessons and we're blown away. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. They've done a wonderful job both with the videos and the actual curriculum, the action steps, the forums that Stephen and Melissa have set up, they're just going to be helpful and just such a great resource for everybody going through this. And yeah, I mean, that is the first major launch from our Choose a Five Foundation. So it's, it's just really, really exciting for all of us here. All right, to our audience, if you got value from today's episode, and if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second and press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us in what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. To do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to chooseify.com slash PC. P is in Paul, C is in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 100. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.